You're in your aircraft and you see something unique, something off in the distance. What is it? Back in the day, there was a lot of times we just had to guess. Now with instruments like ForeFlight or GPS, navigation, air traffic control, usually we can figure out what it is. Even today, sometimes we can't. But do you say something? Do you keep it to yourself? Today, we're diving headfirst into a captivating tale that kicked off a worldwide phenomenon and forever changed our understanding of the skies. Please join us as we explore the enigmatic encounter of Kenneth Arnold and the incredible Flying Saucer, the year 1947. Welcome to Destination Aviation. One of the things that we wanted to talk about on this podcast was UFOs or unexplained phenomenons, what we see in the sky. As I started looking over the many, many, many stories that I figured the best way to start this is to go back to 1947 and really where the flying saucer phrase was coined. I think starting kind of at its core will give every other story a little bit of a understanding of its roots. I myself, I have not seen anything unexplained while I've been flying. I do know of friends who have seen things that they can't explain or air traffic controllers that have seen radar blips of who knows what uh, unknown out there. And so I think there's just a lot of interest around it. I think we all find it fascinating. If you look at the vastness of the universe, it's hard to believe we are are alone. Uh, But it's also hard to believe that aliens have spent the last 50 years probing people on the Appalachian Mountains and (laughs) decided not to say anything to anybody. It was interesting. I had heard David Duchovny once in an interview, obviously from the X-Files, and they had asked him, well, you know, you've done the show for so long. Do you believe in aliens? And his theory was interesting. He said that he had heard that colonies and other planets put their most dangerous criminals on ships and send them out into the solar system. And so he said that would explain a a lot of the anal probing, <laughs> which I found amusing, but that's a story for another day or a story to ever be told either way. So what we're going to do here now is get into a little bit of the background of the day of the flight saucer, talk a little bit about the incident and uh, who Kenneth was. So let's buckle in and start in on this journey. So the year of 1947, a lot of things are happening that, in retrospect, have a great impact on aviation and probably the UFO world as we know it. We're coming out of World War II. We see that the Cold War tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union begin to intensify in 1947, setting the stage for decades of geopolitical rivalry. The sound barrier was broken by Chuck Yeager in his Bell X-1 aircraft. He became the first person known to break the sound barrier in level flight. Another unknown, hearing things booming through our skies, things that sound normal today. Maybe things that people complain about today, but back then, they were new, exciting, and we also had the creation of the CIA. The United States Central Intelligence Agency It was established to gather intelligence and conduct covert operations. Many things were happening in the Western Europe front. We had the Marshall Plan, European Recovery program was initiated by the United States to provide economic assistance to Western European countries after World War II. Nuremberg trials are going on. Jackie Robinson becomes the first African-American to play Major League Baseball and post-war reconstruction. Many nations were focused on post-war reconstruction efforts, including rebuilding infrastructure, economy, societies that were devastated by World War II. The Berlin Lift. In response to the Soviet blockade of West Berlin, the Western Allies initiated the Berlin Airlift to provide vital supplies in the city's inhabitants. The Roswell Incident. 
In July, reports of a crashed flying disc near Roswell, New Mexico, fueled UFO speculation and conspiracy theories. And of course, what we're here to talk about today, the year of the flying saucer. term flying saucer was popularized after pilot Kenneth Arnold's sighting of mysterious objects in the sky over Washington State. So who was Kenneth Arnold? Kenneth Arnold was born on March 29th, 1915. Arnold was a civilian pilot and a businessman from Idaho. He was well regarded in the aviation circles. This was before his encounter with mysterious objects. And we'll get more into the actual incident itself, but Arnold saw his incidents June 24th of 1947. The Roswell incident happened in July of 1947. One would think if the Roswell incident came before this sighting, maybe there was hysteria, maybe people were just seeing things, but it's interesting to note it was a month before the Roswell incident. Kenneth Arnold flew a Call Air A2, a small single-engine propeller aircraft. He was flying this aircraft on the day he made his famous UFO sighting on June 24, 1947. The Cal Air A-2 was a light general aviation aircraft. Kenneth used it for his business activities, which included transporting goods and conducting aerial searches. It was during one of those routine flights in this aircraft that Kenneth spotted the formation of the unidentified flying objects near Mount Rainier in Washington State, an event that would become one of the most significant incidents in the history of UFO sightings. Mount Rainier, a prominent and majestic Strato Volcano, located in the state of Washington, is the defining feature of the Pacific Northwest landscape. It holds cultural, ecological, and recreational significances. Mount Rainier is 14,411 feet above sea level. The Strato Volcano comes because it is characterized by its steep slopes and symmetrical cone shape that layers lava, ash, and volcanic debris. The mountain is part of Mount Rainier National Park, which covers an area of 369 square miles and includes a diverse ecosystem. Mount Rainier has an importance in various cultures, including Native American tribes who have their own stories and legends associated with this mountain. Today, it's a popular destination for outdoor enthusiasts, artists, and photographers, drawing visitors from around the world to experience its natural beauty. The mountain has a proximity to Seattle and Tacoma, but because of its size of the national park, there's a remoteness to it. A sunny day in 1947, high above the Cascade Mountains in Washington State, our pilot, Kenneth Arnold, is at the controls of his small aircraft, gliding through the clear sky, unaware that this routine flight is about to become a legend. Kenneth gazes out over the vast expanse before him. His eyes lock onto a formation of mysterious objects, dislike, agile, and moving in ways that seemed beyond the laws of physics, a sight that would forever change the perspective of what's possible in the skies. So now we're going to go into a little more of a detailed account of it. Arnold took off from Chehalis, Washington, on his way to an air show in Pendleton, Oregon, with a planned fuel stop in Yakima, Washington. Arnold was an experienced pilot with with over 4,000 hours of flying time logged. He was a member of the Idaho Search and Rescue Unit. He was piloting, as we spoke about, his single-edge Cal Air A2 light airplane. That day, the skies were clear and the winds were light. Beautiful VFR day for flying. Arnold planned a detour a bit in route. A U.S. Marine Corps Curtis C-46 Commando Transport had crashed with 32 Marines on board, somewhere near his eastward course. Arnold had hoped to find the downed aircraft and claim the $5,000 reward. Shortly before 3 p.m., Arnold circled his airplanes 20 miles west of Mount Rainier, searching for the C-46. He saw a bright flash to the northeast. Arnold reported, It startled me. I just assumed it was some military lieutenant out with a shiny P-51, and I had caught the reflection of the sun hitting the wings of the plane. 
After more flashes appeared, Arnold ruled out a nearby Douglas DC-4 airliner as a source. He claimed they emanated from shiny objects flying in an echelon formation about five miles long. Arnold described each object as circular, about 100 feet across, with no discernible tail. The objects periodically flipped, banked, and weaved side to side like the tail of a Chinese kite. The information was crossing in front of Arnold as he decided to time its passage from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams. He calculated the object objects were flying at about 1,200 miles per hour. Some accounts say 1,700 miles an hour. That would have been two times faster than any airplane known at the time. As we spoke about before, this was still months before Chuck Yeager flew the Bell X-1 rocket airplane at a speed of 700 miles per hour and exceeded the speed of sound. Arnold emphatically denied that he initially described the objects as flying saucers. But as Megan Garber wrote in her June 15, 2014 article of The Atlantic, stories of time credit Arnold with using term saucer, disc, and pie pan in the description of objects he had seen. He told his stories to reporters Bill Belquit and Nolan Skiff of the East Oregonian newspaper the day after the sighting. Skiff used the words saucer-like aircraft when he published a story print article the same day. After suggesting to Arnold that a wire story might generate comments from the military on flights of experimental aircraft that could explain Arnold's sighting, Belquit published a brief story picked up by the Associated Press Wire Service using the words, nine bright saucer-like objects to describe what Arnold said he had seen. By that afternoon, the term flying saucers had spread nationwide. A radio host interviewing Arnold on June 26 noted how rapidly the story was shared, saying, The Associated and United Press all over the nation have been after this story. It's been on every newscast over the air and in every newspaper I know of. The Chicago Sun ran the headline, Supersonic Flying Saucers Cited by Idaho Pilot. Arnold became a media sensation, but he did not welcome the attention. Interviewed 30 years later, Arnold said, I have of course, suffered some embarrassment here, and there are misquotes and misinformation published in various outlets. Arnold's description of what he saw changed over time. In a report he had sent to the U.S. Air Force in July, Arnold drew a shape not unlike the heel of a shoe. It had a rounded leading edge, and a trailing edge came to a shallow point. It is important to note that the National Air and Space Museum does have an aircraft, the Vought V-173 Flying Pancake, that does resemble what Arnold drew in his reports. However, there was no reports ever that this aircraft was flying in the area. Whatever Kenneth Arnold saw remains unexplained. But subsequent reports used the words flying saucer during the next decade. People around the world label many sightings of unexplainable aerial phenomenons as flying saucers. It is important to note that Arnold himself claims he never said it was an alien. Now, I thought it would be cool to stop here for a minute and talk a little bit about the Vought V-173. And I'll throw a picture up on Instagram of this airplane because it's pretty neat looking. I'm sure anybody out there would like to get their hands on flying it. The Vought V-173 was also known as the Flying Pancake. It made its first flight on November 23rd, 1942. It was an experimental aircraft with a unique disc-shaped pancake design built as a testbed to explore the viability of vertical takeoff and landing VTOL aircraft. Hey, maybe they'll make a comeback. Everybody's talking about it now. Maybe we should send one of these over to Archer or Eve. The aircraft's unusual design aimed to provide increased lift and stability at low speeds and during takeoff and landing. The V-173 was powered by a single continental radial engine and featured a circular wing with a diameter of 23 feet. It had two large propellers that were driven by a complex gearbox, allowing for efficient control and stability. The Vought V-173 successfully demonstrated its VTOL capability 
capabilities and prove the feasibility of the design concept during its flight test. The knowledge gained from the V-173 contributed to the development of other experimental and production aircraft, including the XF-5U-1 flying flapjack. Try to say that five times. I've said it probably ten times into this microphone, which I will now erase all those so you don't have to hear me try to say X-55U-1. While the V-173 was not intended for operational use, it played an important role in advancing aviation technology and design during World War II, and the distinctive appearance has made it a notable and memorable part of aviation history. It's amazing to me how old becomes new again and vice versa. You know, I often say this about text messages versus calling on the phone, right? If texting someone came first and then phone calls came secondly, I think everybody would be like, wait, wait a minute, I can't, I, I don't have to just write, I can call the person. It's kind of the same with aircraft, right? And UAS. If UAS had come first, and that was the predominant form of travel, and then all of a sudden it was, oh, wait a minute, I can actually get in the aircraft and fly? I think that would be all the rave. It's kind of the same with EV toll and this flying pancake, right? Now it's the new and hip thing, but obviously they had something going here in 1942. So the FAA could just dust off those advisory circulars for vertical lift takeoff stations and plug this pancake into there. Nine years before Kenneth Arnold took his flight in 1938, with the specter of war looming in Europe, Orson Welles caused mass hysteria in America when his radio broadcast based on H.G. Wells' science fiction novel War of the Worlds suggested that a meteor-like rocket ships carrying aliens were invading Earth. Flying objects not easily identifiable by the human eye have been spotted all around the world for centuries. Those reported seeing such mysterious objects often attributed them to spirits, angels, phantoms, ghosts, or other supernatural phenomenon. World War II and the accompanying development of rocket science marked a new level of interest in strange flying objects. Numerous Allied pilots flying at night over Germany reported seeing balls of light following their aircraft, nicknamed Foo Fighters, which I do like the Foo fighters. I guess I always thought the Foo Fighters, the band, was, I don't know, had something to do with food fighting, but I think that's what David Letterman used to say anyways. And, uh, well, he's been gone for years, so. Foo Fighters it is. These ghostly flyers were said to be one of Germany's secret weapons. Varying explanations for their flares claimed they were optical illusions or results of electrical phenomenon known as St. Elmo's Fire. Skip now to 1947 and Kenneth Arnold's sighting. Arnold originally thought he had seen test flights of military aircraft. The military later said they had been conducting no test flights during the time of the incident. A prospector on Mount Adams saw the objects at around the same time Arnold, which bolstered his story. After news of Arnold's sightings hit the media, similar sightings began to be reported, increasing numbers across the United States. Leaning up to what we talked about before 1947, just a month later, of Roswell, New Mexico newspaper claiming that personnel of a nearby U.S. Army airfield had recovered a crashed flying saucer. The Army, in turn, explained that the crash was that of a wrecked weather balloon. The Roswell incident was mostly forgotten until the 1970s. Around that time, several eyewitnesses began to come forward claiming the weather balloon was in fact an alien craft. And of course, conspiracy theories regarding Roswell still abound among UFOologists. It's a fancy term for someone who looks for UFOs. In response to Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting, which resulted in subsequent other sightings across the U.S. from other people, the government needed to respond. The U.S. Air Force began an investigation on these 
these reports called Operation Sign in 1948. Among the initial theories of the project's participants was that the UFOs were actually types of sophisticated Soviet aircraft, although there was a hypothesis that they might be extraterrestrial spacecraft. Regarding the June 1947 sighting over Mount Rainier, Air Force investigators deemed both Arnold and the prospector to be credible witnesses, but concluded that what they had seen was a mirage and not flying ships. Project Sign was succeeded in 1949 by Project Grudge, which in 1952 became Project Blue Book, the longest running of U.S. government's official inquiries into UFOs. Project Blue Book compiled reports of more than 12,000 UFO sightings or related events from 1952 to 1969. Of these, more than 90% were eventually classified as identified, meaning that they were caused by a known astronomical, atmospheric, or artificial man-made phenomenon. The remaining number, approximately 6%, were unidentified and included cases in which there was insufficient information to assign the event to a known cause. After the UFO sighting, Kenneth Arnold lived an interesting life, as most things that happen in life that could be strange or unusual to a person that end up being picked up in the mainstream media, it's a blessing and a curse. After the 1947 UFO sighting, Arnold became famous practically overnight. Arnold's daughter would later recall the family receiving over 10,000 letters and constant phone calls. Arnold was contacted by Raymond Palmer, editor of the French science magazine Amazing Stories. Palmer had asked Arnold to investigate the story of two harbor men in Tacoma who reportedly possessed fragments of a flying saucer. Raymond Palmer sent Kenneth Arnold $200 to investigate. This would be known as the Murray Island UFO hoax. On July 29th of 1947, Arnold interviewed a harbor man who claimed that one of the objects began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere on the inside of its center. These newspapers, which turned out to be a white type of very lightweight metal fluttered to earth. The harbor man claimed the craft emitted a substance resembling lava rocks that fell onto his boat, breaking a worker's arm Arnold interviewed Fred Chrisman, an associate of the harbor man, who reported having recovered debris from Murray Island and having witnessed an unusual craft. Chrisman showed white metal debris to Arnold, who interpreted it as mundane and inconsistent with the harbor man's description. Arnold contacted the Air Force, and two officers soon arrived to investigate. The officers conducted interviews, collected the fragments, and took off in their plane to return to base. In the early hours of August 1st, 1947, the two officers died when the B-25 Mitchell they were piloting crashed outside Kelso, Washington on their way back to California. Writing in 1956, Air Force Officer Edward Ruppel would conclude the whole Murray Island mystery was a hoax. The first, possibly the second best, and the dirtiest hoax in the UFO history, Ruppel observed. The government had thought seriously of prosecuting the men. At the last minute, it was decided after talking to the two men that the hoax was a harmless joke that had mushroomed, and the loss of the two lives and the B-25 could not be directly blamed on the two men. Arnold continued to be engaged in UFO interviewing, seeking out stories and individuals who had reportedly had UFO encounters. Notably, he investigated Samuel Thompson, one of the first contactees. In spring 1948, Arnold and science fiction editor Ray Palmer collaborated on an article titled I Did See the Flying Discs, based on Arnold's sighting. In 1950, Kenneth Arnold self-published a 16-page 
page booklet titled The Flying Saucer As I Saw It. In 1948, he authored Are Space Visitors Here? and Phantom Lights in Nevada. So Kenneth Arnold also was a accomplished author. On April 7th, 1950, broadcaster Edward Murrow interviewed Arnold, who stated that since June 1947, he had three additional sightings of nine spacecraft. In January 1951, Cosmopolitan magazine published an article titled The Disgraceful Flying Saucer Hoax, which accused Arnold of igniting a chain reaction of mass hypnotism and fraud that had taken on the guise of a prolonged Martian invasion broadcast by the bizarre Hambone Orson Welles. In 1952, Arnold and Palmer authored The Coming of the Saucers. Reportedly, Arnold came to believe he had seven additional sightings, one of which involved a transparent saucer he likened to a jellyfish. So as we could see, Kenneth Arnold embraced his newfound fame as a UFO expert and doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on UFO sightings in his subsequent years. Now, the interesting thing with Kenneth Arnold is he took up a political career. Now, he never was elected to office, but it is interesting to see how close he actually got. In 1962, Kenneth Arnold announced plans to run for governor of Idaho and won the Republican nomination for the 1962 Idaho lieutenant gubernatorial election. In the general election, Arnold lost to incumbent Democrat W.E. Drevlo. In 1964, Arnold publicly campaigned for Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater, flying a plane painted in the Goldwater 64 slogan, AUH2064. In the 1962 Idaho Lieutenant Gubernatorial Election, Kenneth lost by roughly 21,000 votes, 135,000 to 114,000. So he was close to being the Idaho Lieutenant Governor. Kenneth Arnold appeared in the 1977 convention curated Fate Magazine to mark the 30th anniversary of the birth of the modern UFO age. In 1984, Kenneth Arnold, at the age of 68, died from colon cancer in Overlake Hospital in Bellevue, Washington, putting to close an era that spanned from 1947 to 1984 with Kenneth Arnold at the front, making claims of the original sighting in 1947 and making a career out of it all the way up till his passing in 1984, also using his fame to try to ignite a political career. During this podcast, we referenced a couple of accidents that happened around the events of Kenneth Arnold from 1947 to subsequently some of the investigations he was doing. I thought it would be interesting to just touch on a little bit of the history of those two accidents. So as we spoke about initially, Kenneth Arnold, when he had left his original route of flight, he was a part of the Idaho Air National Guard, uh, and there was a $5,000 reward for a missing aircraft from the Marine Corps. Kenneth Arnold was out searching for this aircraft. Craft. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about what that accident was. It was supposed to be a routine trip for the six Marine Corps transport planes heading to Seattle from San Diego on December 10th, 1946. But the mountains of western Washington were storm shrouded at the time. Curtis Commando R5C planes departed San Diego at 10:36 a.m. They were flying using their instruments from an altitude of 9,000 feet when they reached stormy conditions. Four of the planes turned around and landed safely in Portland. The fifth made it through and landed in Seattle. The sixth, however, vanished with its last communication transmitted at 4.13 p.m. 32 Marines were on board the missing plane. A major pilot, a lieutenant pilot, a master sergeant, 
a sergeant military policeman, and 28 Marine Corps privates. In his last radio message, the pilot of the missing plane told the Toledo Range Station he was flying at 9,000 feet and proceeding normally. The Seattle Post reported on December 11, 1946, the day after the plane disappeared. He was at that time 30 miles south of the range, he estimated. Under normal circumstances, the pilots would have called Toledo again when he was over the station approximately eight minutes later. And only a quarter hour or so later, the plane should have picked up the powerful CAA station at Everett, to which it had been cleared by air traffic control. The storm persisted the following day, and planes set to search for the missing plane were unable to fly. A search began on foot on December 13th as two rangers climbed to an elevation of 6,800 feet, but there was no sign of the plane. Weather cleared for the first time on December 16th, a full week after the plane made its last transmission. There was no sign of the aircraft. After two weeks, the search was suspended as heavy snow had fallen and likely buried any wreckage. The following summer, now this would have been when Kenneth Arnold was flying out in his aircraft, Navy officials concluded that the plane crashed into the side of Mount Rainier at a speed of 180 miles per hour. Some pieces of the plane were located by an assistant chief ranger hiking up Success Cleaver on the South Tahoma Glacier at about 9,500 feet in elevation. On July 21st, 1947, so this would have been a month after the sighting of the UFOs by Kenneth Arnold and while he was looking for this aircraft. Later that week, Mountaineers tried to search the area for the missing men, but bad weather cut the mission short. A month later, Rangers returned to the site and found a crushed nose of the plane at 10,500 feet in elevation. The bodies of 11 men were tangled inside. Later, an additional 14 bodies were seen encased in ice. Recovery crews were certain the remaining eight individuals were among the wreckage as well. Conditions on the mountain and glacier were intense. Crevices had opened throughout the ice, making a half-mile journey take about four hours for experienced climbers. Officials had decided not to recover the bodies as not to endanger the lives of recovery crews. To this date, the crash is the single greatest tragedy on Mount Rainier's history, which has been the site of 325 deaths since it was established a national park in 1899. To this day, the R-5C and the 32 Marines remain on Mount Rainier. So the other incident we wanted to talk about briefly here was the B-25 Mitchell that was downed after investigating the Murray Island incident. You know, we talked about earlier that was the hoax that Kenneth Arnold had called in the military to investigate. Davidson and Brown flew in in their B-25 Mitchell to conduct interviews, collect the fragments, and they prepared for their return flight to McCord. After takeoff from McCord Field at 2.12 Pacific Standard Time, so early morning hours, which was bound for Hamilton Field, about 15 minutes into the flight, the left-hand engine caught fire, filling the interior of the fuselage with smoke. An immediate decision was made to abandon the plane by parachute. Only two crew members were able to bail out before the burning left wing collapsed and separated from the airframe. Both the pilot and the co-pilot died in the crash. The two survivors had suffered slight injuries as a result of their parachute landing in the trees, but made their way independently to a farmhouse and raised the alarm. Some of the reports that I have found say that the aircraft was carrying classified material related to the Roswell incident. I was not necessarily able to substantiate that claim, but it is interesting considering the hoax that they were on in Murray Island that the aircraft was also carrying Roswell material. Um, Definitely something that conspiracy theorists, I'm sure, have loved to take and run with. I myself have not seen anything strange and unusual flying. I did reference that I have friends that have noted they've seen things they can't explain. And I also have air traffic controller friends that speak to things like 
blips on radars, reports pilots that there are things that they can't explain necessarily that are anomalies on either their radar scopes or things that the pilots are seeing out of the flight deck. It is a vast universe out there. As David Duchovny would say, I want to believe. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's hard to think that we are the only beings in such a vast universe. But until there's concrete proof, we can stick this aside with things like Bigfoot and Nessie and the Abominable Snowman. But it was good to go back to, I think, the roots of the Flying Saucer. Because I'm sure this is the first of many episodes that will be around the unknown and the unidentified. While I was looking into this, I also found some interesting other stories that I would like to feature in upcoming podcasts. If you're here now listening to me, it's time probably for me to go, um, as I keep getting alerts that there is a severe thunderstorm coming this way. So let's be glad that we're down here safe on the ground, and think about those that may be up in the sky, and hopefully they're not out there in the line of the storm coming this way. Uh, Until next time, my friends, I will see you down the runway.